Lord, this morning before we lift up some specific requests uh, regards to these next few minutes we spend together, I want to pray for a local official. I want to pray for one who is near and dear to us, Brian Heron. I want to pray for his journey of faith. I want to pray for his marriage, for his, fa- his, uh, his family and his parenting. Lord, I want to pray in all those things that he's fueled by worship, and I pray that he's fueled by worship as he serves on our city council. Pray for God-glorifying, Christ-enjoying wisdom exercised on the council. And Lord, we pray that what that will make for is an environment of peace where the kingdom can be furthered and where Christ can be enjoyed. We're thankful for our context where we can enjoy you freely. Pray that we never take that for granted and we want to continue to lift up our local officials and ask you to use them for your own glory. Lord, I also want to pray for Terry Blankenship, uh, pastor of First Baptist Church here in Greenville. Lord, I want to pray for him and his marriage first. I want to pray that that's fueled by worship. I pray that he is run through by the Word and that it is shaping him to put the gospel on display to family and friends first. I pray that in some ways his wife sees what Christ looks like in the way that he loves her, the way that he cares for her. Lord, pray that that will put the gospel on display not only to those who are near to them, but also to those in the church on a larger scale. That they will spill over from the pulpit through counseling, through one-on-one discipleship or pastoring or shepherding, whatever it might be, that the gospel is on display because Terry's being run through with it. Pray that for Terry, and not only for Terry, but for the other pastors in this community and Christ preachers myself included, that we'll be fueled by worship, that you'll guard us from ever just doing a J-O-B. Lord, in regards to the time that we spend in the next few minutes, I pray for clarity. I pray for boldness. I pray that your people will hear the tone of your message and your warning in Hebrews 2. I pray that we'll get the point. I pray that you will guard us from neglecting such a great salvation pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've had some thoughts going through my head. You can turn to Hebrews 2, share with you as you're turning there, some thoughts that go along the lines of this, something like this. Why in the world, why in the world did I decide that we would preach through Hebrews is one of those thoughts. Another thought is thinking, well, I have some skills that travel. I mean, I've been in sales before, so I have some things I could do if I'm canned. I say that jokingly, but half not. I'm telling you, this is one of those sermons that I'm telling you, it's just not a church growth sermon. It's just not. It is the anti-sugar stick sermon. But it is the point, hopefully getting at the point of what the Hebrews author, preacher, pastor is communicating here in chapter 2. So let's climb right into it. I want to kind of give you your, help you with your bearings, and then we're just going to get right up into the mix of it. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Therefore, therefore is pointing back to what this writer has just communicated. He shared some remarkable truths about Jesus, of what he is, He says, therefore, because of who he is, essentially, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. 
Now, what they had heard is the sunwise message. I say sunwise. If you've been here for a period of a few Sundays, you know what I'm getting at there. It's a message not just about Christ, but it's the message that was and is Christ. He wasn't just the messenger. He was also the message. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to that message lest we drift away from that sun or we'll drift away from it. And now this Hebrews writer begins to make a couple of arguments that support, I guess, rationalize the reason or defining the reason why we need to pay close attention. The first argument we considered, the first part of the first argument last week. The second argument we're going to look at next week. This week is going to be the second part of the first argument. Everybody got that? The second part of the first argument. Here's the first argument. And it is shocking when you really take it in. For since the message declared by angels, that's synonymous with the Mosaic Law. I shared that last week, how they got there, how we get there. For since you could say the Mosaic Law proved to be reliable, and we could say God in it, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how in the wide world of sports... Do we think we will escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, I'm adding, obviously, my own words in there to kind of develop what argument he's making here. It's, it's called a lesser to greater argument. It has a funny name, and uh, I guess it's probably Latin, a minori ad meus. It's a form of argument that shows or demonstrates a lesser issue and the consequences of transgressing in a lesser issue contrasted with the impact of a larger issue. And the lesser, in this case, is God in the Mosaic law. Here's just kind of some examples I used last week. Like, if you get in trouble for yelling at your sister, I could talk to the boys, Luke and Daniel, if you get in trouble for yelling at your sister, how much worse will it be for you if you talk back to your mother? It's going to be worse, trust me. Another example if there are consequences for failing a test and they're, they're grave, how much worse will they be for failing the entire class? It's a lesser to greater argument. And here's how it plays out. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. The question as, is asked as if the answer should be, well, duh, we won't. I love how this guy writes. That's the way he communicates at times. Well, well duh, you won't escape if you neglect such a great salvation. If the law and God in it proved seriously reliable, not just sort of reliable, seriously reliable, how terrible will it be for us if we neglect such a great salvation? If we stop hearing and heeding the sunwise message, if we drift, if we neglect even the gathering of his people, he develops later in the book, and if we go on sinning deliberately, how shall we escape? I thought what I would do just for a moment is to develop are kind of refresh us on sort of focusing on the lesser before we engage the greater today. 
to focus just a minute on the lesser. So listen to this passage. You may have heard this passage in small groups. I wanted to share it last week, but time didn't allow. But I'm going to share this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 28. And I would encourage you, unless you're a visual learner, to just listen. Listen to the God behind these words. And hopefully we can land in the same place after you've heard them. And the lesser will come into focus. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, And cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever and with inflammation and fiery heat, with drought, with blight, and even with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed." The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. There shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt. I don't know why these next few are, are funny to me, as if... Everything happened beforehand wasn't enough. With tumors, with scabs, and if that's not enough, even with an itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. You shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. There shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, you shall not be res- but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you're driven mad by the sights of your eye, that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Man, can anybody hear that and say, okay, well, God's not very reliable. I mean, I read that and I go, listen, whatever you think of God after you hear that, you have to say, 
whatever, whether I like that God or not, one thing I can say about that God is he's reliable. Because you know, these things took place. They weren't empty threats. These things happened to Israel. The Babylonian exile happened to Israel. The Assyrians happened to Israel. Rome, during the Maccabean era, happened to Israel. Some seriously ugly things happened to Israel. He followed through on this. You have to land in the place to say, yes, he is indeed reliable. These Hellenistic Jews who would have heard this message from the Hebrews preacher would have been well acquainted with the reliability of Yahweh. Are we? Is this Old Testament just a collection of veggie tales? Or is it an opportunity to get to know Yahweh? Hopefully the latter. If it's the latter, then we collectively can sort of tremble and quake and together can go, yes, God is indeed, Yahweh is indeed reliable. <laughs> if he's anything, he's reliable. Now, here's the irony, and it's not even irony. Now, irony's funny. It's not irony. I don't know what the word is, but irony's funny, and this isn't funny. This is the lesser of what's in store for those in the new covenant who neglect a greater salvation. I mean, think about that for a minute. Just let that hit you. Let some of these curses hit you as you think about, man, he's seriously reliable. And this isn't some sort of new covenant, the freestyle, uh, do whatever you want to do covenant. There are sanctions and punishments even within the new covenant. And they are more grave than even this. Hear that. They are more grave than even this. If he proved reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect an even greater salvation? That's the point he's making right here. I want to show you a few of the New Testament or New Covenant. That would be a better way to put it because I want you thinking covenant, not necessarily testament. I want to show you a few New Covenant sanctions. And before I do, I want to share a quote for, uh, with you from a guy named Doug Wilson. Some of you who use uh, Omnibus, if you're homeschooling, Doug Wilson had a part to play in Omnibus. This guy's a theologian, a pastor, a prolific writer. I mean, solid, solid guy. And what he says here is not especially deep. It's just well put. Listen to what he says. Too many Christians have accepted the entirely unjustifiable notion that the new covenant is a covenant without sanctions. In the older covenant, the thinking goes, there were strict sanctions. Right? I mean, we read a passage like that and go, whoo, boy, I sure am glad we're in this covenant. You hear those curses, and you hear the earth burping up Korah last week and things like that, and you're like, man, I sure am glad I didn't live then. But in the new covenant, God has decided to do the grace thing. And so there are no covenantal sanctions. This is what he says. The theory is quite pretty and naturally comforting. The problem is it, is it collides with text after text after text. I think the problem really at the heart of it is the overdevelopment, like I said a few weeks ago, of sugar stick sermons and sugar stick passages and sugar stick preaching that leaves people in a place where they don't understand grace at all. 
They think grace equals license. I think in some ways what this is doing for us, hopefully, is it's going to round out our understanding of grace, round out our understanding of faith and what it means to walk with the living God through the finished work of Christ. Let me show you some sanctions. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, is almost like commentary on chapter 2. I'm going to tell you right now, there's nothing better than interpreting Scripture with, with Scripture. And the sweetest thing is when you find Scripture even within the same book that helps you interpret what you're looking at. So that's what this is in chapter 10 in verse 26. It's commentary on what he's saying, this lesser to greater argument over in chapter 2. Listen to it, starting in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately, that's a key phrase, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There are sanctions. It's not freestyle covenant. It's not anything goes covenant. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for the one who goes on sinning deliberately, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law, here's the letter, anyone, the lesser, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant? That's the second thing. And third, by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. That's what sinning deliberately does. It spurns the Son of God, it profanes the blood of the covenant, and it outrages the Spirit of grace. Ironic, that choice of words, the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is yet another lesser to greater argument. And it's one that nicely parallels this chapter 2, lesser to greater argument. And he says here, Deliberate sin, after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. Do you hear the sanctions? Do you hear the punishments? Do you hear God saying, I go thus far and no farther? It's a covenant breach, and there are consequences for that. Look at Romans chapter 11. Let me show you another one. Romans chapter 11. I'm going to show you three of these. Romans chapter 11 and then John 15. And then, let me give you kind of a map for the rest of the morning so you know where we're going. It's easier to run the route if you know the, or run the race if you know the route. Here's the route. I'm going to show you two more covenant sanctions or just examples. And there are many, but a couple more sanctions. And then I want to show you some very familiar things to us and, and how they are both curses and blessings in the same event. Baptism, Lord's Supper, and church membership. I'm going to show you how these things have soil that we walk in right now. They're not just some sort of lofty ideas, but we actually walk in them right now. In those three things, I'll just show you. Baptism, Lord's Supper, and church membership. But now, the second example 
of a covenant sanction. Look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is sort of explaining how the gospels come to the Gentiles. It's explaining what happened to Israel for rejecting Christ and how as a result of that, they were broken away and we were grafted into the vine. That's sort of the imagery that's used. Listen to what he says starting in verse 20. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. If you're like me, you're well acquainted with the kindness of God. That's what I'm talking, these sugar stick sermons and sugar stick teachings. I love them. I love to preach them. I love to hear them. I love to enjoy them. We as a people, in large part, I would say are well acquainted with the kindness of God. But are we also acquainted with the severity of God? The holiness of God. The justice of God. The wrath of God. He says, note, Roman church, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, and fallen specifically to unbelief, is what he's saying. They were part of the vine, but they've fallen away because of unbelief. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The Hebrews preacher introduces the picture of sanctions that are expensive. We're not just talking a slap on the wrist. We're talking about there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. And Paul, too, develops this notion. This picture sanctions, if you don't continue in his kindness, you will be cut off. I have, I've probably been party to this, but I've heard lots of this. Gymnastics to try and explain away passages like this. I've probably been party to it at some point. But looking at these passages now through Hebrews chapter 2, I don't want to be party to them. I want to let the weight of these passages hit me, and I want them to hit you. Or we miss the point of Hebrews. I was thinking when I was sitting back there sucking my thumb, huddled up in the fetal position before I came to preach. I was thinking Hebrews really ought to be a book that you just go to when you're preaching another book. Just for reference, just to make a point. It shouldn't be a book that you just move through verse by verse. Because you have to deal with some, reckon with some hard stuff. And that's what's happening here. Some really hard passages that you look at them through the lens of Hebrews chapter 2. And where you go, yeah. He's not less reliable under this covenant. He's more reliable. And the sanctions under this covenant are even graver. Look at John chapter 15. I don't know if graver is a word, but it should be. John chapter 15. The Hebrews writer was making the point. Paul makes the point. Jesus will make the point too. That there are sanctions or punishments 
or curses for betraying this covenant. John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. We like to think of, actually, well, he's going to prune the ones that aren't bearing fruit. No, he prunes the ones that are bearing fruit. If you're a follower of Christ and you're like, man, you're going through some crisis, one or another, that's a good thing. You're being pruned so that you can bear more fruit. But he's contrasting here those who don't bear fruit at all and said those are taken away. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, can you, you can do nothing. Watch. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch. And he withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. You have to see that passage and understand that he's talking about branches that were once part of the vine. They were taking nourishment in Christ. He said, if you don't abide in me, you are thrown away like a branch and you're going to wither and the branches will be gathered up and thrown into the fire and burned. Please don't do gymnastics to explain that away. Just let the weight of that hit you. There are grave sanctions for sinning deliberately in this covenant. Grave sanctions for neglecting Christ. Grave sanctions for not abiding in Him. Grave sanctions for not continuing in His kindness. I want to tell you right now, the thing that's been so frightening for me, the reason I'm sucking my thumb in the fetal position... The reason I'm wondering if I'm going to be selling Kenny's shoes is because I don't want for a moment to communicate that this is a works-based salvation. It's not. This is not a works-based covenant. And you know what? Neither was the old one. It's always been by faith. This is not a works-based covenant. And you know what? It's also not freestyle covenant. Anything goes covenant. Grace does not mean that you go freestyle and go on sinning deliberately, or not continuing in His kindness, or not abide in Him, and that you're somehow going to be saved. You have transgressed the covenant. Let me show you some sanctions and blessings that go with some very familiar events. Let's start with baptism. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Now, I'm going to tell you, of the three, the baptism I'm going to give the most time, Lord's Supper, the next to most, the next to least, whatever you want to, however you want to look at it, and then church membership, the least amount of time. But I'm going to give them all fair treatment. But I'm sharing this with you so you'll go the distance with me on all three of these things. Baptism. As you're turning to Colossians chapter 2, I have my pages marked for good reason. Okay. I want to share something with you as you're turning there. Baptism, man, I don't know if we've ever had a baptism where people weren't celebrating it. 
I mean, seeing the family celebrating it, man, seeing the family smile and pictures and, you know, the excitement. I mean, you should be because it is a serious time of blessing. But I want you to understand that the same waters of blessing become waters of curses if you walk away from Christ or if you neglect this great salvation. Baptism, in some ways, is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the finished work of Christ. But in some ways, what, I, what you want to see in baptism is it's sort of like a wedding. Some of you have been married recently, and a lot of you are married, and a lot of kids, you've been to a wedding at some point in time. So we can climb into this imagery of marriage. I want you to think of baptism sort of like a wedding ceremony. A baptism, in some ways, is the point in time where we look to God and we are asked the question, do you take this God to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold in sickness and in health, riches or poverty, till death, in our case, won't part you, but till death. That's sort of what baptism is. It is the moment where you as an individual, or if you're baptized as a family, some of you have been, where you publicly, just like a wedding ceremony, declare, I do. I do, God. I take your hand as you've taken mine. Think of baptism that way. Peter Lightheart, I like what he said. He's a guy that I, I read a lot. He said, it's the water crossing between membership in Adam and membership in Christ. It is a profound moment. You could say you're going from singlehood to marriage with your creator. You've been going freestyle on your own, doing what's right in your own eyes. But now you're marrying your creator. You are named with the triune name and are counted as part of the people of God, married to God. Think of baptism as that ceremony, that covenant ritual. Now, listen to this passage I'm going to read in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were, you also, or also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. Now he's talking circumcision there as sort of a metaphor. When you by faith trust Christ, you participate in his really tearing of flesh as he is in some ways circumcised via the cross. You participate and are circumcised in the heart. You may be connecting some other passages there. It's very appropriate. It's sort of metaphor. It's you've been circumcised with Christ by putting off or tearing away your own flesh. You're not driven by your fleshly appetites anymore. You're fueled by something else. Now we're still carrying around this flesh, but you have been circumcised in the heart. Now watch, having been buried with him in baptism. Now the first part is metaphor, and it's taken them back to really old covenant imagery. The old covenant, the seal or the covenant ritual of the old covenant was what? It was circumcision. Well, the covenant ritual of the new covenant for us is baptism. 
And we're not just talking about some sort of ethereal idea or like spirit baptism only. We're talking about water baptism as well. Those things go together. I don't know what it is about us in our contemporary context, but we try so hard to separate the two because we have so many people that have trusted Christ and then they go years without being baptized by water. Our New Testament authors do not differentiate between spirit baptism and water baptism, and I'm not going to make the effort myself. This is not metaphor right here, where he goes. We've been buried with him in baptism, in that covenant ritual, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What I want you to see in this passage is I want you to see that this is our covenant ritual. As the covenant ritual under the old covenant was circumcision, ours is baptism. And I want you to understand something about baptism. It is more than a dip in a cool pool. It is more than just symbolic. Something happens when someone confesses their sin to God publicly how they've wronged him, and they call out for cleansing. There is power in that moment. And water baptism and spirit baptism should be thought of together. Our New Testament writers don't separate them. God shows up in that moment, and he reckons you buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. I'm going to tell you this. To consider this as just symbolic is to be, what I'm going to tell you is a bummer to hear this, you being Gnostic. Gnosticism was an early false teaching in the church where they separated the physical from the spiritual. And what it ended up being is they just decided, we can do whatever we want with our bodies because it's separate. You know, we trust Christ. We'll do whatever we want to over here with our body. Not realizing those things are connected. I don't want us to think Gnostically about baptism. Think about baptism in terms of there's three or four people that are going to be baptized today at 4.30. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the fabric of the journey of faith where people participate in baptism. Connected to the thing that many of you have gone through and some of you have yet to go through. We're talking about that thing, not some sort of ethereal notion of it. Peter calls baptism an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul, ironically, says this. And listen to what he says in Acts chapter 22. And now, why do you wait? He's just priest in Jerusalem. And now, why do you wait? Here's what he says at the end of his sermon. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. All, all those things go together. Those things are connected. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm developing something for you here that I hope you're going to see some importance in here in a minute. Follow me. 1 Corinthians 6.
as you're turning there, I'm going to read just for the sake of context. We're going to focus primarily on verses 9 through 11, but just for the sake of context as you're turning. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? He's dealing with the Corinthian church that are going to lawsuits, believer to believer. He said, man, you should rather suffer wrong than take your lawsuits in the context of unbelievers to decide your cases. So that's the background for where he goes now in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. I want you to understand that that language there, that's baptism language. He's not just talking about the symbolic washing by the blood of Jesus. He's talking about baptism. When someone steps into a pool of water and publicly declares, I do, something happens there. He's speaking of the language of sacrifice. You may not be familiar enough with the book of Leviticus, but all these sacrifices that are offered, what's the first thing they do with those sacrifices? They wash them. That's what's happening in baptism. You're being washed as an offering. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Turn to Romans 6. We're almost to the point where I'm going to bring this home. Romans 6. As you're turning there, I want to just throw this question out. If baptism is such a big deal, if it is the covenant ceremony, if it is the covenant ritual where we make an appeal to God for a good conscience and where we are cleansed and God shows up and reckons that person one of my baptized people, if it is those things, what is it when we, having been washed, having said, I do, climb back down into the dirt? What is it? It is worse than to never have been washed at all. I want you to hear that. It is worse than to never have been washed at all. Think of it this way. What is it to get married and become unfaithful in your marriage? It's worse than to never have gotten married at all. Man, marriage is a blessing, right? Anybody that's married, I hope you can say it's more blessing than curse. I hope you can say that. It's a blessing. But let me tell you something. When you say I do, you have stepped off into a covenant and a commitment where there are grave sanctions if you walk out on it. There's some serious heartache at least. Those of you who have gone through divorce, you know what I'm talking about. But beyond just even your heartache, and you've sinned against God. And there are sanctions that go along with that. There's blessings, but there are sanctions. It makes me think, before I look at Romans chapter 6, it makes me think of the conversation that the disciples are having with Jesus about divorce. And Jesus says, let me tell you something about marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate. 
And they're like, well, what about, you know, Moses gave provision for a divorce where a husband could write his wife a certificate of divorce. And he said, that's only because of the hardness of your heart. And except in cases of sexual immorality, when one does that and then remarries, they're committing adultery. And you remember how they responded? Well, why would anybody ever get married then? They got the gravity of the covenant and what it meant to walk out on something that God had joined together. That's what we need to hear as we hear this warning from the Hebrews writer. You neglect this great salvation? You should be saying, man, you're better off not even getting married than to walk out on that thing. This is serious. This isn't a game. We're walking with Yahweh. That's the way this thing should hit us. We should marvel with the disciples. Man, why would anybody get married then with such grave sanctions for walking out on it? Exactly. Exactly. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, man, no way, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been, here it is, baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is saying right there, the same thing I've been saying. He says, you know what? We're married. We live like it. What would it be like for you to be married and you're off clubbing every weekend, picking up chicks? That'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? You're like, man, dude, you're married. That's what he's saying here. You're married to God. How could you possibly sin all the more that grace may abound? Just because you're in a covenant marriage with that woman doesn't mean you can go run off clubbing. That's the point he's making right here. And let me tell you something, knowing knowing that, understanding that sort of covenant commitment, that doesn't take the love and joy out of marriage, does it? I'm thinking about it this way, does it take the love and joy out of marriage to expect covenant faithfulness from each other? (laughs) It doesn't for me. That would be like every wedding ceremony, the vows being, oh, that's a downer. (laughs) Oh, this has been a pretty sweet wedding up to that point until they had to make commitments to each other. Down or up, you know, party pooper. What? That's the highlight of the ceremony. I do. Yes, I do. Man, it doesn't take love and joy away from this thing to say that covenant faithfulness is expected. And baptism is that ritual. It's that ceremony where we say, I do. We've injured the weight of baptism by saying it's just symbolic. It would be like saying a wedding's just symbolic. Right? You see a couple that's been dating for a while, and you're like, hey, man, you guys been dating for a while? Yeah. Uh, Y'all married? Well, yeah, we're married. We hadn't had our ceremony yet, but we're married. You're like, what? Oh, yeah, we hadn't had our ceremony yet where someone's pronounced us before the living God and before witnesses as husband and wife, but, you know, we love each other and stuff. So it's not merely symbolic. God shows up in that moment and says, as that man says, I pronounce you husband and wife, in God's eyes, they leave one. They leave married. It would be Gnostic to separate the two, right? We shouldn't separate baptism either. 
Questions like, what happens if you get hit by a car after you ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord? Are you going to go to heaven because you haven't been baptized? It's just a stupid question. I'm just going to tell you right now, it's just a stupid question. <laughs> I'm not going to give two seconds to that question. Our New Testament writers would have gone, huh? I don't have time for that stupid question. Of course, they wouldn't know anything about cars. But <laughs> Baptism, belief, and I do go together. Now, all that to say, that's quite a development. And again, that's the most lengthy of the three. I put a little therefore sign, a little math sign, therefore, in my notes. So, therefore, to step away from Christ after being baptized into him is to walk out on the marriage, and the waters of blessing become waters of curses. I don't know if you've ever thought about this this way, but Noah... You think about the flood waters as being judgment waters. Well, they are judgment waters, but they're also deliverance waters. Moses and his family are lifted up buoyantly on the top of those and carried away from judgment. The same waters that were the waters of judgment for the rest of creation become the waters of deliverance for Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their families. Think about the Jordan this way. The same water that parted for the Israelites drowned the Egyptians. When you walk out on this covenant relationship with Christ, or you neglect this great salvation, the, the waters of blessing, the waters of deliverance, become waters of curses. It's walking out on the marriage I'm going to say that right there for me, that's strength yet again for confessional baptism over pedo-baptism. And I have a lot of respect for my pedo-baptist brothers who are proper pedo-baptists that understand it. But to me, considering what it is, I want somebody to be old enough and have an awareness enough to go, I'm about to get married to God. It doesn't seem appropriate to escort someone into that marriage without them having some sense of it because it has grave consequences if you bail on it. The waters of blessing are also the waters of curses if you walk out on it. And that may scare some people. Say, man, I will never want to be baptized. It would be like saying, well, I never want to get married. It might be some difficult times. We might end up getting divorced. So I never want to get married. Well, you're going to miss out on a lot of blessings if that's the case. Because marriage done rightly is far more blessing than curses. Far more blessing. And it's a treasure. And that relationship with the living God is the same way. Now, let's consider the supper. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Y'all are hanging in there well. Thank you for hanging in. 1 Corinthians 10. The supper also has blessings and curses in it. And I'm not talking about an ethereal supper. Like an imaginary notion. Not an imaginary, a notion. I'm talking about the stuff that's sitting on that table and that table right there. Bread and little wee cups. I'm talking about real stuff that we're going to pass out in a little bit and take together. We're not talking about um, ideas. We're talking about realities that we walk in every single week. 
the supper. 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to start in verse 1. I want you to look for Paul's connection to baptism and supper in in this passage. Listen for the connections. I want you to know, brothers, Corinthians, we could say uh, Christians in Greenville, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, speaking of the Israelites, and all were baptized into Moses. There's yet again another picture of baptism connection to deliverance through the watery ordeal. They all passed through the sea. They're baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters. Another Another way to put it is eating at other tables, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in other tables like sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Man, just connect some of that to Hebrews chapter 2, the lesser and greater argument. He's bringing into focus the lesser there, and he's saying we must not do the same thing because the consequences are going to be graver. These things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... That's these things and these little silver shiny things on either side of us. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not? That word participation is the word in Greek koinonia. It's fellowship. When, we put your, when you put your hand around that little cup and when you put it to your mouth and you drink it, you are fellowshipping with the blood of Christ. Is it not participation or fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread in the little baskets that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Hear this. You cannot drink that little bitty tiny cup with the little juice in it and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? The problem of the Israelites is they're eating at all the wrong tables in addition to the Lord's table. They're eating and drinking and then rising up to play. Sexual immorality, grumbling, quarreling, idolatry of every sort. What you need to understand is that when you eat and drink the supper, you are participating and fellowshipping in the blood and the body of Christ. And I'm going to tell you this, it's what married people do. 
They fellowship with each other. They participate in each other's lives. That's what we're doing when we take the supper. It's like spending time with him. You're growing close with him through having a meal together. That is fellowship at its best. This meal is not symbolic only. To say it's just symbolic is Gnostic. And to say God's not even here and we're not eating with God. It's just a wee cup and a wee piece of bread. And it's not related to my journey of faith. In fact, it is connected. Just like baptism is connected. When you walk out on that baptism, there are grave consequences. When you eat and drink and rise up to play and practice idolatry and neglect our great salvation and go on sinning deliberately, there are grave, grave consequences. Let me show you the next chapter. Take you exactly where Paul takes them. Chapter 11. Now, if you follow me on this, you're going to see how I'm, I'm talking practical this is. This is dealing with us right here, right now. This is not some heady notion. Listen to where he takes them in chapter 11, starting in verse 17. In the following instructions, Corinthians, the ones that I just said those previous words to about this, the one cup, about being baptized into Moses, that whole passage. I do not commend you, Corinthians, because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. You hear that? So, someone might be saying, man, I made it to church today. <laughs> oh, sweet, man, I got it going on. I got my check in the block. And he's saying, you know what? Nice. But it's not for the better, it's for the worse. You would have been better off not coming and doing what you're about to do, is essentially what he's saying. In the first place, when you come together as a church, think of them just like you're thinking of us. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Some of you may be in church so long, you think, well, that's just part of church. Division, man, that's got to happen. That's part of church. No, it doesn't have to happen. But it was happening here. Thankfully, we have a God that can even use that. He said, I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, here's the problem. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. The picture there is the picture of not having enough and a picture of excess. Forget the fact that it's alcohol and drunkenness. Just consider it, it alone as being crazy excess. For someone to have enough to get drunk on compared to one that doesn't have anything, that's the divisions he's talking about right there. You have the haves and the have-nots in the church. So you're going to come eat this meal and yet you're divided by the haves and the have-nots? And the haves are stuffing their faces with excess and the have-nots are sitting there hungry and thirsty. Do you not, not, not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then he shares the passage that we read often in preparation for the Lord's Supper about what was given to him, about the account and the details of that night before Christ was crucified. And then in verse 27, he picks up, listen, here's where it hits home. Whoever, therefore, 
eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and in this case, the unworthy manner is humiliating the poor, the haves just having and keeping, and the have-nots having nothing. When you eat the cup or eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord that you fellowship with, remember? There's sanctions. There's punishments, and you're about to see them. Let a person examine himself, not just himself only, but at least a self-inventory. Examine yourself, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that would be us, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see how this meal is a meal of blessing, and at the same time, it's a meal of curses? If you take it wrongly, it's not a blessing to you. It's not a ministry of grace to you. It's judgment to you. If you're a have and a keeper, a haver and a keeper, and you're in the church, you could potentially be what he's talking about right here. If you're all about having and amassing, while there are have-nots in the bride, you're guilty of the same thing he's talking about right here. The same exact thing. And he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. That's not Gnostic right there. Is this just symbolic? How come people are falling out dead? Is it just some ethereal idea? Or does it actually talk about real bread and real cup and real sin? I mean, you guys have not examined yourselves. And that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Man, there are sanctions that go along with this meal. It's a blessing we want to run to every week. Every week. But let me tell you something. You examine yourself and examine your role in the body. Examine how our body is walking together. And it could be judgment that we're eating if we're taking it wrongly. Blessings and sanctions even in the same thing, just like baptism. And here's the third thing I'm not going to give much time to. It's membership in the body. I love membership in the body. I, at least at Crosspoint, we believe that membership in the body is the sort of thing that we need to consciously, intentionally communicate to each other. Not just sort of hanging out together, sort of common law-like, but intentionally saying, I stand with you as a member of you and you as a member of me. There are tremendous blessings that go along with being a member of a body. And I'm not saying that it has to be this body. Hopefully you've heard that if you're a visitor, you've been here long enough. Be a member of somebody, knowing and being known because that matters. Tremendous blessings. Two are better than one. When one falls down, there's another one there to help them up. Man, the character of the people of God. When you have gifts that are expressed, someone has the gift of encouragement. You ever been on the receiving end of the gift of encouragement? That's sweet, right? Does it bless you when an encourager comes to you and encourages you? That's the blessings of being part of a body. You ever been on the receiving end of someone who has the gift of hospitality? I love being on the receiving end of someone who has the gift of hospitality because that might mean a good meal. It's going to mean a blessing. And those are all blessings as part of the people of God. But let me show you the flip side. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 18. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. This is something that's called church discipline. And every time I say this word, those who haven't been walking with us for a period of time and don't really know anything about it, who may have just heard like little pieces of it go, what is church discipline? (laughs) Sounds heavy-handed and ugly. Let me tell you, this right here, it's church discipline at its best, and it happens all the time. It happens every week. In fact, when I first came to Crosspoint, here's what I spent a lot of my time doing. If I had someone, you could fit them into this story, a brother sins against you, that brother who was sinned against would come to me or come to one of the other elders and say, hey man, you know, Billy Bob, he made me mad at what he did the other day. And I spent a tremendous amount of time trying to go fix it. Right? I mean, the other elders, I'm sitting here smiling and saying, I know what you mean, man. What a waste of time that was, wasn't it? What's even better than that and what should take place in the church is when one brother wrongs another brother, instead of coming to the pastor, or you can come to the pastor, and hopefully the pastor's faithful, he's going to say, go to that brother. That's what it says right here. That's church discipline. It's not ugly. In fact, that's the way things ought to operate. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I'm going to call that on the blessing side. That's good. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Yes. Oftentimes you go to somebody that, who's wronged you and you bring it up to them and they're mortified. And they're thankful. Thank you for coming to me and let me know that I hurt your feelings. I am so sorry I did that. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now it's getting a little more public. You take some others with you. And just imagine, this is the one who's going on sinning deliberately. This is the one who is neglecting a great salvation, potentially. This is the one who is spurning Christ and all that's been offered to us in the gospel. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I'm going to tell you right now, what's recognized here is recognized there. I used marriage as a great example. Two people walk into a chapel individuals in the eyes of God they walk out one someone's baptized God recognizes them part of the baptized people of God an elder is ordained they lay hands on him and we pray over him they walk in an elder candidate they walk out an elder God recognizes them an ordained appointed elder what happens here is recognized there And there are grave consequences when you're part of a body and you say, you know what? I'm going to do whatever I want to do in this area. I was with y'all until it came up to the point where I couldn't move in with my girlfriend. And you know, that's the point where I got to go my own way in that area and stuff. Because we love each other. Endless love and all. We're going to do it our way, not God's way. And by the way, who said it was any of your business? God said it. That's church membership at its best. When two are better than one, one falls down, there's another one to say, man, don't defile the marriage bed. Please don't continue in this sin that you're, you're walking in. That's the picture of church discipline in the body 
being really on the kind of the, the curse's end. What happens here is recognize there. The last thing that I was going to engage is preaching, but I'll probably send it out in an email. But here's where I want to bring it home. These things that I've talked about this morning, baptism, Lord's Supper, and church membership, these are what I would call, I've never used this word before that I know of, but it's a good phrase, the warp and the woof of, 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 of the faith. Warp and woof of faith. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? It, it, it means the fabric, the soil, the earth that we walk in in faith. Warp comes, it, it's actually, warp and woof comes from fabric. Warp is the, 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 strain, the strands that run this way. The woof is the strands that run this way. What I'm saying is that baptism, Lord's Supper, membership, being part of each other, that's where we're talking about faith is lived out and walked in. One who neglects a great salvation, the way they neglect a great salvation is to walk out on these things. It's to walk out on the warp and the woof of faith. It's what the people of God do together. They baptize. They take the supper together. They enjoy the journey of faith together as members of one another. They exercise the gifts they approach each other when wronged. They spur each other up and stir each other up by way of reminder. They spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's what the people of God do. It's the fabric of the life of the people of God. When you walk out on that, you've walked out on God. You understand that? When you walk out on that, you've neglected a great salvation. Second Peter, listen to this passage, just listen. Second Peter, Peter's writing about false teachers. And he says these words. He says, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... Insert person that you know in there who's walked out on Christ in the faith, who's neglected a great salvation. You may know who, you, you may be that person, or you may be able to connect to that person. One who has escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. It's happened here a number of times in eight years where someone comes to a knowledge of faith in Christ, and man, they're excited about Christ. They were, I Insert problem. Alcoholic. Their marriage was on the rocks. Whatever situation. Their life was, they've lost a loved one and seen death up close and personal. They've come to faith in Christ. Year one and year two, they're like this. During sermon. They're like this. They have a journal and a really sharp pencil. And I can hear them from the pulpit. And they're sending emails and notes every Sunday about what God showed them. Man, God is awesome. How amazing. Is I've escaped the defilements of the world, and I'm enjoying Christ and the knowledge of Christ. And then in year three, somebody hurts their feelings. Or year three, maybe I say something that kind of bothers them. Or year three, maybe their marriage gets difficult. Or maybe in year three, they have an opportunity to work some more, and they end up working on Sundays. And then by year four, it's crickets. 
By year four, we do the duck and jive in Walmart. You know, you in Walmart, you just buying, you know, I got to buy tires and underwear. You in there? Get them all at the same time. You come around a corner, and there they are. And you're like, oh, oh, they didn't see me. When just three or four years earlier, man, it's... Here it is. Here he says, if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in, in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. The waters of blessing have become waters of curses. The meal of blessing has become the meal of judgment for them. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. You hear that? My goodness. That is the summary of the sermon right there, that, that one passage. It would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing him herself, returns to wallow in the mire. <laughs> Peter is so earthy, man. He is not pulling any punches with that imagery. Jesus spoke of this same scenario when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Man, there are serious sanctions for walking out on this covenant. You're, you're better off having never even entered into it than to walk out on it. I've never come at this covenant that way. See what I mean? Hebrews. Did we really have to engage that? I think we did. It's in our Bibles. And it's a stiff warning that's there for a purpose. It's a warning that's issued to a church that's just started going through the motions. That's just indifferent about this good news that we're walking in. That can happen to any of us. In fact, it could happen to all of us. Yeah, yeah, church. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, gospel. Instead of being run through by these realities... We can neglect this great salvation. And some of these things we talked about, these New Testament sanctions or these New Covenant sanctions, they may not sound as bad or as rough as being swallowed by the earth, but the Hebrews writer is saying that the Old Covenant sanctions, they're shadow and thin sliver in contrast to these. Shouldn't we neglect our great salvation and betray our covenant husband and drift and stop hearing and stop heeding? Our God will indeed not be mocked. As it says in Galatians, New Covenant writings. And he was and continues to be a consuming fire. As it says in Hebrews 12, also New Covenant writings. Man, I encourage you, whatever your understanding of grace, let these sort of realities round out your understanding of this covenant that we're walking in. Please don't 
let your system of understanding the gospel render these impotent. There's text after text after text that says this is serious and it's too good to neglect. (laughs) It's too good to be indifferent about. And it's too good to go through the motions. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now, (laughs) if you're willing. (laughs) Anybody have this stuff for the Lord's Supper? One thing I don't want to do is scare you away from the supper. I want you to run to the supper. But let me share this with you. I thought, you know, I was going to do this in a follow-up email. And I will do most of this in a follow-up email. I have four ways that you can walk out in obedience in this. And I'm going to share one of them with you right now. And we're going to connect it to our supper. I'll share the others via email. Matthew chapter 6 says this. This is, again, one of three things I'm going to share with you later this week. And I'm sharing this now because we're going to connect it to the supper. Chapter 6, verse 14 says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Anybody like that? I like that promise. But it gets hard when you have somebody that you can't forgive, right? Somebody that you're like, man. Now, when God said that, when Jesus said that, he didn't know how bad I was wronged and how ugly this person was to me and how thoughtless they were. But he says, if you, here's the sanction. See, that's the blessing. Here's the sanction. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Boom. I mean, does anybody swallow hard at that? Anybody else here ever have trouble forgiving somebody? I have. In fact, I do. You want a new covenant opportunity or an opportunity to walk in a new covenant blessing where when you don't walk in it, there's sanctions? You want as an act of worship to walk in a new covenant blessing? Then whoever it is that comes to your mind when I talk about someone who's difficult to forgive, purpose yourself, commit yourself to seek that person out and reconcile with them. Extend forgiveness. Seek forgiveness too if you've wronged someone. On the page before, in regards to anger, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You think these earthly, excuse me, horizontal issues don't have a vertical impact? They absolutely do. The sanction is there, I don't even hear you, worshiper. I don't even hear your worship. I don't want to even smell the incense or the offering I don't want to enjoy, I can't even enjoy the noise of your symbols if you're crossways with your brother. I don't want your offering until you've reconciled with your brother. In asking for forgiveness and offering forgiveness to your brother, you're walking in my blessings. In the absence of those, you're walking in my curses. So let's 
have some application to our supper right now. And let's make the commitment. If you have wronged a brother, not only should you not take the supper, you shouldn't give an offering. How about that? That's right, that's what I said. Go reconcile with that brother or that family member or that wife or that husband or that son or that daughter or that mother or that father. Go reconcile with them this week and then make a beeline for that table. Make a beeline for that offering satchel, whatever that thing is. (laughs) I never know what to call that thing. Not saying don't worship. But man, let's walk in the blessings that we've heard this morning. Attentive to the sanctions. Let's realize this isn't a game. We're not in a club. There's very real application. We may have a lot of leftover Lord's Supper. That's okay. There'll be more next week. And we may not have any money come in this week. I don't care. Let's offer it rightly. Having reconciled with our brother or sister. Let's do that right now in the supper and in the offering so that next week we can dine and give rightly. Now, if you've kept a short account with people, take and eat, (laughs) take and drink. But if you're thinking of anybody right now I need to tie up some loose ends with, don't take and eat. Judge the body rightly. And don't even give your offering. Reconcile and then come back and give it. Let's have the supper together.